Is God a God of love? Well, technically, no, he isn't. I got your attention, didn't I? We're going to talk about that on this week's episode of the Faith by Reason podcast. Welcome to the podcast. The website behind it all, as always, is faithbyreason.net. And there you will find the blog and our archives and categories and a ton of great information. You'll also find our social media links and this very podcast. So we are still in the series of what's the point? What's the point of existence? What is the meaning of life? And we are examining God. Why? Because if God is a cause of existence, and we know he is, then he likely has an answer to the question of what's the point of existence. So we're examining God. And so far, we know that he is always and completely right and just. He is the first cause, and the first cause is always and completely right and just. We also know that that's all we can know about him based solely on human understanding. And anything else we know about him would have to come from him, from the first cause himself from some information source that he gave us. And we know that information source is the Judeo-Christian Bible. We've spent the last couple podcasts talking about that. So what are the characteristics? What are the traits of God? Well, probably the most pervasive and well-known trait of God is love. If you were to ask anyone, be it Christian or atheist, what God says about himself, they will say, well, God is love. God says he is love. He says that in in the Bible. I mean, the, the most famous verse in the Bible, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So God is love. But is God a God of love? Well, that's actually a good question. It's kind of a different question when you really get down to it. It it really gets down to our definition of love and how accurate that definition is or how inaccurate it is. And so in order to understand love and more specifically God's love, we really need to have a definitive, non-contradictory definition of, of God's love. And most of us don't. I'll give you an illustration. I was at a party a couple years ago. It wasn't a very good party, but I was bored and I was there. And while I was at the party, I overheard this atheist talking about Christianity and he was just railing on Christianity. He was going back and forth about how dumb Christians are and how uh, God makes no sense and Christianity makes no sense and so it makes no sense and so forth and so on. And atheists are they're, they're funny people. You know, atheists have something in common with people from New York. You see, there's a trick I know. I can tell if someone is from New York within the first minute of talking to them. See, it's not because of the accent or anything like that. I can tell if someone is from New York within the first minute of talking to them because within the first minute of talking to anyone from New York, they will tell you they are from New York. Whether you ask them or not, whether you even care or not, people from New York love the fact that they are from New York and they love telling you about it. They think it makes them special. They think the fact that they managed to fall out of their mother's vagina in one of the five boroughs somehow makes them special. And and it really doesn't. Nobody cares. People from New York, if any of you are listening right now, if you're a New Yorker, let me help you out with something. Nobody cares that you're from New York. We really don't. In fact, the only people that care that you're from New York are other people from New York because they'll be the only ones who react to you. You say, hey, I'm from New York. Really? So am I. I'm from New York, too. Really? What street are you from? What borough? Blah. And you do your whole thing and you guys can go have a New York love fest. The rest of us really don't care. I mean, everyone is from somewhere. And the fact that you're from New York doesn't mean anything. Sorry to burst your bubble. But atheists are the same way. Atheists will tell you within the first minute of talking to them that they are atheists. They are proud of it. I'm an atheist. I don't believe in this God. I don't believe in all this mystical nonsense. But that's what makes them so funny. An atheist is a person who, by their own admission, defines their existence by their fight against something that they don't think is really there. I mean, think about that. An atheist is a person who says, I don't believe in God and I'm going to fight him. That makes no sense at all. But the funniest thing is that they think that their lack of belief makes them intellectually superior. 
I mean, you will find no greater show of arrogance than an atheist talking to a Christian. Uh, and they will say, oh, do you really believe that God spoke the world into existence in three days? Or oh, do you really believe that he flooded the whole world? Oh, do you really believe that, that Jesus was born from a virgin? Do you believe there's, there's a magic man in the sky who grants your wishes? And it's not the do you really believe part that's annoying. It's really that uh, that little huffy tone they get in their voice because they're so superior to you. And, and they're so intellectual because they don't believe in God. But think about it. If you are walking down the street and you see some homeless guy fighting something, physically fighting something that's not there, do you think, hey, there goes one of the great intellectuals of our time? No, you think, hey, there's a crazy homeless guy fighting something that's not there. But the, 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 the homeless guy is actually a little more sane than the atheist because at least the homeless guy thinks what he's fighting is there. He thinks his invisible monster is there. The atheist doesn't think that God is there and the atheist still fights him. Folks, that is insane. But in all seriousness, I don't think atheists are insane because I don't believe that there's really any such thing as an atheist. I don't believe that atheists disbelieve in God. I think they do believe that there's a God. They just don't want there to be a God. Why? Because no one fights something that they don't think is really there. No one fights something that is make-believe. For example, I don't believe in Santa Claus, but I have no and have no reason, no desire to fight against him. I mean, if I see two kids talking about Santa Claus, I feel no compulsion whatsoever to jump into the middle of them and say, you know, that's impossible for this fat man on a sleigh to go around the world in one night and give gifts to all the good boys and girls. That defies the laws of physics. And it's just, it's completely impossible with jet propulsion and blah, blah, blah. No, if I see two kids talking about Santa Claus, I just walk on. Why? Because I don't believe in Santa. He's not real. Therefore, he can't harm me. No one is intimidated or angry at something that's not really there. So the reason that atheists fight against God is because subconsciously they know that there's a God because they believe in causality. Everyone believes in causality. And so they know and we know that causality proves God. We, we talked about that a couple podcasts ago. So they know there's a God. They just don't want to believe in God. Why? Because if there is a God then he probably has a plan for you and he wants you to be accountable to that plan. And unbelievers do not want to be accountable to God. They don't want to be accountable to anyone. They want to be the gods of their own lives. Therefore, they want to they don't want there to be a God so that they can have that status up in their own life and be in control of their own life. So that's why they fight against God. That's why they write books about God and and get into arguments about God and read all these books about him, trying to disprove him and trying to uh, prove themselves right, because they believe that, that if they can defeat God in an argument, then somehow God goes away. So if they get into an argument with a Christian, that's why they're always trying to get into arguments with Christians, because they, they, they're not trying to learn more about God or understand why Christians believe in God. They just want to beat the Christian in an argument because they believe that they beat the Christian in an argument that I guess God goes away. So if they get into an argument with someone who's maybe a new Christian who doesn't have a lot of information or a current American Christian who doesn't have a lot of information about God, and they come up with an argument that the Christian can't defend, then God goes away and they get closer to their uh, justification that there's no God. But God's existence isn't based on how well or how poorly someone argues him. I mean, if they get into an argument with someone who is knowledgeable, like someone like me or someone who's with even more knowledge than me, and they defeat the atheist in an argument, which I've done many times because atheist arguments are really, really weak and easy to defeat. But even that doesn't prove God. Even if I beat the atheist in an argument, that doesn't prove God's existence. God's existence is not proved by how well someone argues for him. God's existence is self-evident based on causality, which everyone believes in, including the atheist. So anyway, back to the party. So this atheist is railing against God and I hear him and 
I don't want to be a part of it. I just, I leave the area. Not because I'm afraid to argue with him. Not because I'm afraid he'll prove me wrong. I'm not concerned about that. Like I've said, I've, I've, I eat atheists for lunch. Their, their, their arguments are so specious and terrible that it's just not a big deal for me. But the reason I don't want to argue against him is because, frankly, they're not worth my time. If you've read this blog and if you're listening to the podcast, then you know that I put a lot of time and effort and work into uh, producing these things and, and putting forth the knowledge that I've gained through, through again, hours of research and money that I spent on books and seminars and commentaries and things like that. And I'm not just going to give that information away to someone who isn't really looking for it. Now, don't get me wrong. If you have a sincere desire to know about God, then I will do everything I can to help you. But if you're if your motivation is simply to prove me wrong and justify your disbelief, I don't have time for that. I, I, I really don't care about, to, I don't really care about them to that degree. I'm not an evangelist. And I'm glad there are evangelists. They're wonderful people. I'm, I, I, I admire evangelists. But they have that gift. Evangelists are gifted by the Holy Spirit with a burning passion to see the lost people saved. And I'm glad they're there. I don't have that gift. The Holy Spirit gives all of us gifts when we become Christians, at least one gift. My gift happens to be, happens to be teaching. So what I wanted, my passion is for helping Christians understand their faith, but it's not evangelism. I'm not that concerned about saving souls. Sorry, that's just not my gift. And I'm, uh, despite what people like Ray Comfort says, we're not all evangelists. God never says that everyone's an evangelist. He specifically says in, in the Pauline epistles that he gives people different gifts. And that's not my gift. And again, I am glad there are evangelists out there because it was, if it was up to people like me, there maybe be like 12 people in heaven. So anyway, the atheist is doing his thing and I just walk away. Unfortunately, before I can get too far away, someone who knows me points at me and says, hey, that guy over there is a Christian. And I'm like, oh, great. So I see the atheist. He starts marching towards me and I can't get away because I didn't drive to the party. I drove with a friend, so I, I can't escape. So here he comes and he says to me, hey, are you a Christian? And I say, yes, I'm a Christian. Well, I have a question for you. Well, of course you do. See, the thing about atheists, that's another funny thing about them, is that atheists always want to talk about God. Have you noticed that? Atheists want to talk about God more than Christians want to talk about God. And that's their favorite subject, even though they apparently don't believe in him. <laughs> Whatever. So I have a question for you. I'm like, okay, what's your question? Do you believe that God is a God of love? <sighs> I know where this is going. I've heard this argument many, many times. What he, what, what he just asked is a setup question. Do you believe that God is a God of love? What he expects me to do is answer yes. Yes, I believe God is a God of love. And then his response will be, well, if God is really a God of love, then why is the world such a terrible place? Why is there murder and rape and war and famine and sex trafficking and drug dealing if God is really a God of love? And that is actually a legitimate question, not coming from a legitimate source, but it is a, legit, a, a, a legitimate question. If God is good and all powerful, why is there evil in the world? And that is a question that's worthy of its own podcast. And I will be talking about that a few podcasts down the road. But from this guy, it was not a legitimate question because he wasn't really looking for an answer. Again, he was just looking to defeat me in the argument. So instead of falling for the bait, I decided to throw him a curveball. He says, do you believe God is a God of love? And I say, no, actually, I don't believe that God is a God of love. Well, that stops him in his tracks because he wasn't ready for that answer. He says, well, what do you mean? You don't think God's a God of love? I said, no, actually, when you ask me if someone is something of something, you ask me about their nature. When you say, what is God a God of? You're asking me, what is God's nature? And God's nature is not love. God's nature is to be always and completely right and just. That is what God is a God of. God is a God of righteousness and justice. An effect of his righteousness and justice is his love, but that's not what he's a God of. And so while he was reeling from that, I asked him another question. So let me ask you something. 
What is love? If you're going to impugn God's love, then we need to define love. So you tell me, what is love? He says, well, uh, well, you know, love is love is when you have, you know, really positive, benevolent feeling towards someone. Okay, great. That's your definition of love. So if you don't live up to that, would it be fair for me to say that you aren't being loving? He said, well, sure. Great. So let me ask you a question. Do you love your mother? He said, well, yeah, well, of course I love my mother. All right. Do you always love your mother? Well, sure. I always love my mom. All right. Well, have you ever been angry with your mother? Well, sure. Everyone gets angry with their mother. Well, then you just contradicted yourself. You said that love is a positive, benevolent feeling, but you just admitted that you get angry with your mother. When you're angry with her, you are not feeling positively for her, towards her. Therefore, during that period of time of anger, you no longer loved your mother. Therefore, you cannot say you always love your mother, can you? So then I can conclude that you are not always loving. All right. Now let's talk about God's love. Now, if we can impugn your love based on your definition, then we need to get God's definition of love if we're going to impugn God's love. So, can you please tell me what the biblical, non-contradictory definition of God's love is, and can you give me an example of where God is not loving according to his own biblical, non-contradictory definition of love? And of course, he couldn't. He could look there. He just stood there stone-faced, mostly because atheists are completely ignorant of the Bible, sadly. Many Christians are also ignorant of the Bible, so he just stood there. And I walked away and finished my beer, which I think was a rolling rock. I told you it was a lame party. I mean, who serves rolling rock? That stuff's nasty. But while I feel no obligation to answer atheists and give them my knowledge, you, dear listener, do not fall into that category. You actually are looking to learn and go deeper into your faith. So I am obligated to give you an answer to the question of, is God a loving God? By defining what God's love truly is in a biblical and non-contradictory manner. And if you want to know the biblical definition for something, the best place to look is the Bible. And that brings us to the doctrine of expositional constancy. That is a very fancy sounding word that theologians use to make themselves sound really smart because people who are overeducated and spend a whole lot of money on their education like to use really, really fancy words that nobody understands except them because it makes them sound smart and makes it seem like they got their money's worth when they went to get their doctorate. But what the doctrine of expositional constancy really means for us regular people is that the first time a word, term, or phrase is used in the Bible is generally definitive and significant. So what is the first time that the word love is used in the Bible? Well, it's actually used in the book of Genesis when we are talking about a man named Abraham and the sacrifice of his son, Isaac. Um, In the show notes, I will put the actual chapter and verse in there so you can look it up and research it on your own. But uh, we'll get into Abraham in detail in a later podcast. But for now, suffice to say that Abraham was a man who was very important in God's plan. And God made some very fantastic promises to Abraham. And it's a great story to get into. But uh, in order to get Abraham ready to be a part of his plan, God took him through quite a few things to build his faith in God. And one of the final tests of, of Abraham's faith faith was when God asked him to sacrifice his son Isaac on a place called Mount Moriah. He basically told him to go up the top of the mountain and kill his son Isaac and sacrifice him in order to show that he was faithful to God, which Abraham readily did. He took his son up to the top of the mountain and just when he was about ready to plunge a knife into his belly and and gut him, God stopped him and said, okay, Abraham, you you, you proved that you were loyal to me. You proved your your faith to me and you're going to get all the blessings that I promised you. Now, before we get into what this has to do with love, I want to address something that seems pretty obvious right now, which is the idea that God was apparently uh, advocating uh, infanticide, the, the killing of one's own child. 
But this is where you have to take the Bible into context and look at it holistically before, you know, someone says, oh, well, this just proves that God is a cruel God because he wanted this man to sacrifice his only son. And again, on the surface, it looks that way because, you know, God told him to do it. And he also told him that Isaac would be the seed through which God would fulfill his promise. So God not only seems cruel, but he seems kind of he seems to be, you know, countering his own his, his own promises by doing this. But again, if we look at this holistically, the entire Bible, and we go to the book of Hebrews and to the chapter called the Hall of Faith, which I will have in the show notes, you will see that Abraham knew by this time, Abraham had built his faith in God up so much that he knew that if he killed Isaac, God could not break his promise. God would have to resurrect him. So that's what Abraham figured. He said, hey, okay, God, you want me to sacrifice him? I believe in you. I know you're right. You're always completely right and just. And if I if I kill him, well, hey, it's not my problem. It's your problem. You still have to fulfill your promise. You can't go back on your promises. So if I kill Isaac, you're going to have to resurrect him. So it, the ball's in your court. So not only that, but this was, an, again, not only just a test of Abraham's faith, but it was also symbolic because God, again, stopped him. God was not going to let him go through with sacrificing his son. But God also knew that on this very same mountain, on Mount Moriah, in a couple thousand years, he would sacrifice his own son on on this hill, which would be called Calvary in the first century. So this would also be the site where a father would actually sacrifice his son for the sins of the world. So Abraham was, in fact, acting out prophecy. He was rehearsing one of the most significant events in human history. Okay, so back to love. What does this have to do with love? Well, if you read the verse that talks where where we uh, talk about Abraham's sacrifice, God says to Abraham, Abraham, go take your son, your only son, who you love, and again, go sacrifice him on, on, on this mountain. So what God is saying when he uses the word love, he is using it in the context of sacrifice. So that's a really important thing to remember looking at the, again, the, the doctrine of expositional constancy. Love here is tied intimately to a very strong sacrifice. And again, going forward to the most famous verse in the Bible, you know, John three sixteen, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. We are again connecting love to the sacrifice of a son. And this is the ultimate sacrifice for a reason we're going to get into in, in a couple minutes. But again, re- remember that the level of love is attached to the level of sacrifice. So if if love is sacrifice, the greater the sacrifice, the greater the love. If you're walking down the street and you see a you know, homeless guy and you decide to give him a few bucks, well, you, you're being loving to him because why? You're giving something to him. You're sacrificing something to him. And depending on your income, those few dollars might actually be a great sacrifice or maybe it's a minor sacrifice, but it's still love and you're being loving to him on, on sort of a smaller level. But to get the full and complete definition of love, we need to go to what, what's been called the love chapter in the Bible, which is First Corinthians 13. It starts off, you know, though, though I speak with the voice of men and angels and have not love, it really means nothing. And it goes on and on. But uh, Corinthians 13, I, and I just use the, the New King James Version. So Corinthians, uh, Corinthians, First Corinthians 13 is one of those places where the newer translations actually don't do a good job of improving on the original King James. The original King James is actually more accurate when we're trying to define love because that word love is actually translate, translated as charity in the in the original King James. And I understand why the translators of the newer editions uh, try to change that because charity doesn't sound quite as intimate and, and magnanimous as the word love. So charity sounds like, you know, something you do to get a tax write-off. But in that original King James translation, charity is actually the most 
accurate description of love. Why? Because charity is not only giving, charity is giving without the expectation of getting anything in return. If you give a couple bucks to a homeless person, you're not expecting him to come back to you a few years later and say, hey, man, you gave me those that, that, that those few dollars and it really turned my life around and I'm doing great. So here's your here are your dollars back. No, you're not expecting to get it back. You gave it to him and you went on with your life, not expecting to ever hear from him again. So that's the true definition of love is actually charity. It's giving without the expectation of getting anything in return. That's the true biblical non-contradictory definition of love, giving without expecting anything in return. And God shows this in John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he what gave his only begotten son so that what? whosoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. God was not expecting to get anything back for his ultimate sacrifice. He said, whosoever, he didn't say God so loved the world that he made everyone believe in him. He said, no, whosoever, you can do it or you don't. God sacrificed his own son without the expectation that anyone would believe in him. So if whosoever, if you want to believe in him, great. If not, well, then I'm still going to do it. Whosoever means that God had no expectations um, on his greatest sacrifice, his greatest show of love. So, again, love is the willingness to give without the expectation of getting anything in return. And again, the level of love is attached to the level of giving or sacrifice. Giving a few dollars to a homeless person is a sacrifice, but not a great sacrifice. So if God is loving and he is, he is God, he's going to give you the ultimate Love And how do we know what the greatest ultimate love is? Well, the Bible says that greater love has no man than to lay down his life for his friend or someone who he loves, even expecting to get nothing in return. So the greatest sacrifice I can make for my family would be to give my life for them, to give my life for my wife or my kids. That would be the greatest sacrifice that I, as a human being, could make. But God's sacrifice would have to be greater than that since he is the ultimate love. So the ultimate love would be giving your life not for a friend, but for an enemy, for someone who you were in enmity with. And that's what happened at this at the crucifixion. That's what John 3.16 is talking about. Because at the time of Christ's uh, death, the world was his enemy. These were not his friends. God, Jesus did not lay down his life for people who loved him. He laid down his life for his enemies. And, that, and we will talk about why man is God's enemy and was in enmity to God when we talk about the when we get to the original sin series. But for now, let's just say that when Jesus sacrificed himself on the cross, he sacrificed himself for people who were his enemy. And that is the greatest show of love. So if I were to have completed my argument against the atheists at the party, I would have said in order to prove that God, by his own definition of love, is not loving, you'd have to prove to me that he did not sacrifice himself as Jesus on the cross for the sins of the world. And of course, he couldn't do that because... The death of Christ is one of the most uh, documented events in history. But that idea actually leads to something we'll, we're going to start discussing in the next post. And that is, I said in that verse just a couple seconds ago that greater love has no man than he sacrificed himself for his friends. And I just said that God sacrificed himself for his enemies. But I also said that God sacrificed his son. Is there a contradiction there? Well, not if God and his son are the same. Not if um, God the Father and God the Son, Jesus, are both God, then yeah, that is God sacrificing himself. And that gets us into the very controversial topic of the Trinity. The Trinity being the idea that God is triune, that he is one God expressed in three persons. 
very controversial, not just outside of Christian circles with you know atheists and people from Islam, for example, who don't believe that God is triune and they use that to disparage Christianity. But even within Christianity, there is a controversy as to whether or not God is one or three. And we're going to talk about that in the in the next podcast where we're going to discuss whether or not God is a trinity and how that ties very intimately and very definitively into God's love. So uh, thank you for listening to the podcast. I appreciate it. Uh, please send me your comments and subscribe to the podcast, subscribe to the blog, um, follow us on social media, and I will talk to you next week when we discuss the Trinity. 